We'll hear argument now on number 9742, Eastern Enterprises versus Kenneth S. Apfel. Uh, Mr. Montgomery. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case presents the question left open in prior cases concerning the extent to which the Fifth Amendment places any restriction on the power of Congress to impose retroactive liability on private parties to fund social programs. The Coal Act of 1992 is an unprecedented statute as applied to Eastern Enterprises, and it is contrary to the constitutional traditions embodied in the Fifth Amendment for two distinct reasons. First, the Coal Act violates the Due Process Clause because it changes the legal consequences of past employment relationships that concluded long ago at a time when Eastern could not have anticipated any future obligation. Are you arguing substantive due process or procedural due process? Your Honor, we have attempted to the best we can uh, not to put a label, but if a label is necessary, it is substantive. I you're going to have to if you're going to persuade us. Your Honor, if a label must be placed, it would have to be substantive due process. But as we have pointed out uh, in our briefs, the values that we seek um, to protect here are largely procedural values. Uh, the interest in notice, uh, in understanding the consequences of one's actions. Uh, it is procedural in that sense, I suppose in the way that uh, the void for vagueness doctrine is procedural. I mean, you, it, it went through the legislative process. That's probably all the procedural due process you're entitled to. Certainly so that is what the court... You fall back on a substantive claim. Certainly that the court has restricted procedural due process to the legislative process in the past, and we don't mean to suggest that in order to prevail in this case, the court needs to create uh, a new doctrine. And uh, substantive due process, as you know, is, is not in good odor with regard to uh, economic rights for some reason, although we still apply it with respect to non-economic rights. It certainly has not been in good favor for some <laughs> decades, Justice Scalia. Um, the Court, however, has been very careful in its decisions uh, not to suggest that there were not limits to the power of Congress to, led to uh, enact retroactive legislation. And we are here to say that this is the case which uh, crosses that border. No, distant, you, you, no, your been. client is not um, maybe as sympathetic a client as some of the ones talked about in some of the amicus briefs filed in this case. I, I guess um, Eastern uh, sold the coal mining operation to a wholly owned subsidiary, in effect. We, we transferred. And then there was cross-management. I mean, some of the same managers of Eastern were also managers of the subsidiary corporations. So Eastern doesn't come here uh, in the same shoes as some of the amici. We are certainly not in the same shoes of those amici who have been driven into bankruptcy. But in terms of the, uh, the analytical application of the statute to Eastern, Liability has been imposed on Eastern solely because it was an employer of miners. Okay, well, let me ask you one more question, and then I'll subside here. Uh, you have a right of reimbursement, is that right, from Eastern for any liability incurred here? Section 9706F, Justice O'Connor, preserves to Eastern any right that it may have had to seek recovery uh, from its subsidiary or the party to whom it sold the subsidiary, Peabody Coal. The statute does not create any new right of action. So, Eastern, Did Eastern uh, preserve a right of recovery well, against its <clears throat> subsidiary? In the, in the third-party action that we filed below, we allege that we do have a right. I will tell the Court that if, to the extent that we have a right, is a right in implied indemnity. There were no documents that passed between Eastern and its subsidiary or between Eastern and Peabody Holding Company, which um, specifically spoke to the possibility of future statutory liability. 
And in the event that we are unsuccessful here, we will be left with that third-party action in the District of Massachusetts in which we will attempt to advance our right uh, to obtain recovery um, on an indemnification or contribution ground. Does the record tell us the amount and the extent of the liability and the number of the employees, or do we, is, that, is that known at this time? Justice Kenney, the record tells us that as of the time that we filed this lawsuit, that 1,400 employees, former employees, or their spouses uh, had been assigned to Eastern. Um, Since the lawsuit was filed, we have had additional assignments, but those are not part of the record. With respect to the amount of the liability, it is an annual premium that's established by the combined fund. The record is undisputed that at the time that the lawsuit was filed, and Mr. Harper's affidavit is in the record to this effect, that the actuarial calculation of the liability was in the vicinity of $100 million. But that's disputed to the extent at least that you would have a deduction for that expense, so that would bring that down a considerable amount without any other factor. Certainly, Justice Ginsburg, and we're not attaching any special significance to the amount of money. May I ask you that... Your position is that Eastern, which severed its relationship with these employees many decades ago, should not be responsible. On your theory, can any private party in this picture, Eastern successors, can anybody compatibly with substantive due process or the takings clause be responsible, or is this the kind of obligation that can be thrust only on the public as a whole through the revenue system? The test that we have suggested here, and that we think is reflected in um, the Court's precedents, such as Concrete Pipe and and Turner Elkhorn, is whether a party upon whom Congress seeks to impose a retroactive liability has some reasonable basis. Is there anybody, let's take this case specifically, are either of the successes, suppose the tax... uh, uh, scratch tax. Suppose this liability had been imposed on Peabody. Under your theory, would that be compatible with due process? There is a class of companies that are included within the Coal Act uh, that we believe properly bear that responsibility. Would be Peabody, who currently in the business. We're, we're not seeking at this point to shift our liability to any particular company. But which these are these are miners who stopped working in the mines in the 1960s. That's right. Who in this picture would be responsible for them? If we are successful here, the miners and their spouses assigned to Eastern will then be reassigned under the priority scheme set forth in the statute to other companies for whom those miners worked, or in the absence of such a company, will be assigned to what's called the orphan pool. And Would that be compatible with due process, just concentrating on the people who never worked for any existing company? Certainly. These employees, these very employees, would it be compatible with due process to distribute them among employers who never had any employment relationship with them? Absolutely, Justice Ginsburg. Well, what was, what was the notice, what was the expectation uh, that these present companies had that, that this would occur? I, I, I'm not sure the, how you can be so categorical as, as, as to say that Justice Ginsburg hypothetical presents no due process problem. I don't wish to be categorical as to every single company. Um, there are certainly other companies that may have as applied uh, complaints to present with respect to the application to them. But as to whether uh, obligations can be opposed retroactively on those who participated in a multi-employer plan, at least beginning in 1978, which undertook to provide defined benefits. Yeah, but, the, but for employees who were never beneficiaries of that plan, I mean, it seems to me that, that they're as remote from uh, responsibility as you are. Some of them may be, Your Honor, but those... Which ones wouldn't be? Which, well, certainly we have... Which ones who never employed these people or their, or their decedents uh, would, would be any closer to responsibility than you? Justice Scalia, it is, it's critical to understand that those who signed collective bargaining agreements from period to period, when they executed those agreements, they undertook an obligation to the very employees who have been assigned to Eastern. 
the very individuals who were beneficiaries of each of those plans. But they didn't undertake this obligation. They undertook, they undertook an obligation that was at least as extensive as this obligation. No, but the fact that I agreed to do something for A at a certain amount doesn't mean I, I, oh. I don't quite understand your distinction. I agree with that. The distinction, there are various classes that are included in the statute, and I don't want to confuse the Court, certainly with respect to the class of so-called 1988 signatories, those who signed the last collective bargaining agreement at a time when deficits began to develop in this plan because they lowered the rate of contribution uh, to fund the benefits, including the benefits to these employees. And when that plan started to develop those deficits, we do submit that it would have been perfectly uh, within Congress's authority to say that all of those companies should have understood that when they made changes in the plans that took the plans into a deficit position, uh, they should have understood once the initial uh, legislative interest was expressed in this uh, subject in 1989 by Senator Rockefeller shortly after the execution of that agreement that there was some reasonable possibility uh, that Congress may step in um, and, uh, and rescue the plans. Well, shouldn't, shouldn't you, by a, a similar line of reasoning, or shouldn't Easton, have understood that whatever its obligations may be, and I realize those are in question, but whatever its obligations may be, uh, may be affected by the actions of the independent trustees so that at any time in the future, this kind of shortfall, let's say, from imprudent trustee action, uh, imprudent action in, in, in determining the amount of assessments, whoever makes them, might very well result in an added liability to you or to Eastern, many, many years hence. So I don't see a distinction in kind between what you have just described as the, as the, as the latter imprudent conse- consequences of imprudence uh, and the anticipation that you should have made or Eastern should have made of imprudent consequences. I would suggest that there is um, a, degree, a difference of more than a degree, uh, Justice Souter, in uh, anticipating congressional action within a year or two uh, after a particular development in the history well, of the plan, another over a generation. With, with respect, perhaps congressional action uh, might be difficult to anticipate, but the need for some action, uh, uh, even if it be a lawsuit, judicial action possibly, uh, to, to enforce a, uh, a, a liability thought to have been incurred, that certainly is not difficult to anticipate. Well, I suppose it's your position that the liability um, uh, only extended for the life of the contract. That's certainly the case, and our liability... I mean, that much was clear. It wasn't like one of these long-term, continuously extended benefit plans. They had a limited term. Is that right? That's exactly right. And prior to 1965, as to the contracts that we signed, those were defined benefit excuse me, defined contribution contracts. Well, they, they limited, limited to the contribution without any agreement as to defined benefits. But the other side says that, uh, <clears throat> uh, that Congress found that you had created uh, 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 an expectation of lifetime benefits. Even though you're only making defined contributions, you had created an expectation. What, what, what is your response to that? Justice Scalia, the Congress only made one finding, and that finding is in the preamble to the statute, and that finding simply says that those that the, the Congress seeks to attach liabilities to those most responsible for plan liabilities, period. And the rest is from the Commission report, which the Congress did not itself adopt. Did not itself adopt. Uh, that's exactly correct. The, well, the expectations argument certainly is prominent in the judicial decisions that have upheld the COLAC. If, if in fact, in respect to expectations, you had never formed a separate subsidiary, imagine you'd never formed it and you stayed in business till 1987, then would you think it was constitutional for Congress to impose upon you the obligation that you're talking about today? Not at all, because it would not have been reasonable on the expectations Mm -hmm. Uh, argument, Justice Breyer, for minors or their spouses to develop any expectation at all 
as a result of Eastern's conduct. So, so in your in in your view, if you'd been in business till 1987, and all the companies that were in business up until 1992 or 93 or before this very act was passed, it's unconstitutional in your view for Congress to sell these companies in the mining industry. That you have to take care of the miners who were there previous to 1992. Perhaps I misunderstood your question. If your question is, uh, is it unconstitutional to the extent that Congress noted that we were in the business till 1987? No, I'm, I'm trying to pretend you'd never formed a separate subsidiary, and therefore you continued to do business. Everything else is the same, but you just did business without your separate subsidiary. You were the subsidiary, so you left in 87 instead of leaving in 65. I'm saying then, in your opinion, is it unconstitutional for Congress to impose this very obligation upon you? Our position here would be far weaker if we had never. No, but I want to know if you think it is or isn't constitutional. I think it is not, unless this no, court is. Then your position is that, that, in fact, they can't impose these obligations on anybody, however long they stayed in, as long as they left prior to this very law being passed. Is that right? Oh, just where I want my meaning to be clear. I think this court would have to extend concrete pipe in order for liability to attach to uh, companies that were in business up until 1987 or but is This court could do that, and I think it is only a modest uh, extension. But I do not believe um, that it is constitutional absent that, uh, that determination. By right, so you think you have a stronger case because you left in 65? Absolutely. All right. Now, is your case stronger in any respect at all but for you have some expectation that Congress won't pierce corporate veils. Congress considered the extent to which it ought to pierce the corporate veil, and it did not. Yes, all right. Our expectation clearly was reasonable, we believe. Well. Because we had a well-capitalized subsidiary that made all of the contributions that were asked of it, um, and remained in business. That, that's very helpful, because you're taught my, my, what I get from your answer is that's right. I think you're saying the only additional expectation you have is that Congress won't engage in veil-piercing. And then you went on to ask, answer just what was the next thing in my mind, is, is that a reasonable expectation, given that Congress has passed quite a few statutes that pierce veils? CERCLA, uh, states pre-pierce veils. Uh, veil-piercing is not an unknown thing. And therefore, how reasonable is that expectation? Now, you began to answer that, and I'd like you to continue. In this particular statute, Congress also pierced the veil and set up a category of responsible parties called related persons. Eastern, under that veil-piercing mechanism, is not a related person. And we think in that regard, Congress got it right as to Eastern. Mr. Montgomery, I think you're saying that it doesn't matter what your expectation was, that even if your expectation was that there would be no veil piercing, that expectation has not been frustrated. It has not been frustrated. That's absolutely correct. The the basis for your liability here is not veil piercing. It is not. Our liability is exclusively based on the fact that we were directly an employer between 1946 in 1965. Are you Period. putting all your eggs in the due process basket, I take it, today? Not at all, Your Honor. We have. Well, uh, I thought he had a takings claim in the. I do indeed, and uh, we do have a takings claim, um, and I would like to address it. Uh, our takings claim rests on two premises that the takings clause is designed to avoid the injustice of uh, forcing someone to bear. Uh, public burden that ought to be bear- borne by the public themselves or by someone else. Uh, what, 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 what are the cases in which there is a taking, but the government has not been enriched? Uh, here the government doesn't take property and use it for a firehouse or a park or a school. Uh, as the government uh, projects the argument to us, this is simply an adjustment of liability between two private parties. What, what case do you have where that occurred and we found there was a taking? Hodel versus Irving with respect to the uh, escheat of uh, uh, title rights on Indian lands. Um, United States versus Security Industrial Bank. Uh, and going back further, though it's not cited in our brief, 
a case uh, and an opinion by Justice Brandeis, uh, Thompson versus Consolidated Gas. Uh, in each of those cases, the government effected a transfer of property from one private person to another private person. Uh, that's exactly what the government has done here. Um, but in doing so, the statute undermines values which are um, held dear in the course of this uh, court's takings jurisprudence. And that is uh, value that says that we ought not to have um, individuals singled out uh, to bear public burdens, uh, to bear more than their fair share. Uh, well, the, the uh, argument is made, I think, in, in respect to this singling out, and it's made uh, with respect to the rationality under the due process argument, that you're not being uh, improperly singled out because, as, as I think you mentioned earlier, because of the finding in the committee report uh, that you, in effect, had, had created the expectation that the benefits were going to be lifetime benefits. If we... Uh, if we find that report something that we ought to consider significant, uh, and if we also bear in mind what is in one of the red briefs, and that was a, a statement by an industry representative, I think it may have been, the, maybe it was the first independent trustee, Mr. Owen, I think, uh, exactly that effect back about 1950. What, what argument do you have uh, that we should, in effect, overlook that finding, which does establish a connection, can we make fact-finding of our own? Does the record indicate that that conclusion is so far unsupported as to be irrational? I think that's your burden. Uh, it, it is our burden, and I'm going to have to slide back over to the due process side to, to some extent. To but, but doesn't it question. also affect your takings argument? It, it, it does. <clears throat> the expectations... Um, Finding, if it was made by the commission, first of all, is not one that was, was not made. by. A, it was not a committee report that made the finding, was no. it? It was it is the Coal Commission, well, appointed by the Department of Labor. Appointed by the Department of Labor, though, as a technical matter, its report was never adopted, to so far as we're aware, by uh, the Secretary of Labor after it was submitted. Uh, but that report does not speak specifically to the class of companies of which we were a part, the so-called super reachback companies who were in the business directly only up until 1978. But even to the extent that there um, is uh, a finding that was made with, um, that we created expectations, um, the expectations argument is, if I might be charitable and a little loose with my language, is a fig leaf. It's a fig leaf for essentially unlimited liability that might be opposed retroactively um, on companies that uh, have been in business. No, uh, but if, if, the, if we accept the finding as, as significant in the decision in this case, in, in judging the, the nexus, the rationality, however you want to put it under the different headings of your argument, uh, then, in, then, in fact, it is, it is not a fig leaf simply for a finding of unlimited liability. It is, in fact, a basis for identifying a class with respect to whom liability is at least arguably quite reasonable. And so I, I, th I think it has greater significance that you're, than you're willing to accord to it. I, <clears throat> I would suggest, Justice Souter, that the Court is entitled to and ought to look at the facts that underlies that so-called expectation finding. And those facts are simply that a party entered into a limited contract, a contract which at the time, uh, in an exchange with the union, was sought, thought to be um, a social advance. And then by virtue of that participation to the limits of that agreement, it is now suggested that an expectation was created that that, the that's the government's that, argument at, in its footnote at page 30 of the brief. That's and, it, and it focuses on the 1974 agreement. Correct. And it says the fact that at that time the companies, uh, by the contract, agreed to pay these benefits for previous workers showed that there existed then an expectation. Could, could you address that? The government says so, but there, wasn't, there certainly is no finding to that effect, and that doesn't make it so. And I would suggest that the Court ought to consider how private contracting, either in the employment area or in any other area, is going to work if, on the one hand, we are entitled, as a matter of freedom of contract, to participate in bargains 
and to participate to a limited extent. But at the same time, the government may come along a year later or a generation later or more and say, by virtue of your mere participation, you have set up an expectation. And that expectation provides us with a basis, an unlimited basis. Well, the government would have us say that this was a consensus in the industry, that this is a duty of the employer because of the uh, fact that wages have been low and benefits have been high. That's what I understand the argument to be. Well, there, there is no finding with respect to such a consensus. If there was a consensus, it was a consensus to participate under the terms of the Taft-Hartley Act in a multi-employer plan. But One of the premises. Why did the trustee, uh, I'm sorry, why did the trustee make, as I understand it, essentially the same statement in, what was it, 1950? Way, way back. <clears throat> that statement needs to be looked at in context. What the trustee was doing is complaining uh, about the management by the trustees of the assets that had been tendered to them under the terms of the agreement. Yeah, but the terms of his complaint were that basically there there had been a promise of lifetime benefits. A promise of lifetime benefits, which he suggests in his statement that the industry couldn't possibly fulfill. Was the trustee authorized authorized to speak for the companies on that point? Absolutely not. In this this Court's decision in Amex Cole, I think you made it clear that under the Taft-Hartley Act, independent trustees are not representatives of the company and are not entitled. Well, I I would agree with you there, but uh, the the whole line of questioning, I think, starts with the assumption that we're going to consider the Commission report. Uh, and, and your burden, I, I think, if we're going to consider it, your burden is to say that that simply is not, into, that is not a, a reasonable statement of findings that, that can be taken into consideration. Uh, and I suppose one item of evidence on that would be the fact that somebody, a trustee, who was theoretically neither for you nor for them, was saying something very similar to that in 1950. And I think that affects your burden. That's my only point. And my response is, is largely the same, and that is if the statement is looked at in context, I think you'll see that it was not made on behalf of the companies, and it does not support uh, the weight that the government uh, has attempted to put If the government it. can come back years later and say, hold you responsible for having had a small participation in putting out some kind of tailings or toxic waste that people didn't even at the time know was toxic and so forth, why can't they come back years later and say we're going to hold you partly responsible for putting out their millions of miners who spent their working lives in the industry and feel in their old age that somebody has given them an expectation they'll be taken care of medically? What's the difference between those two uh, situations? The difference is causation. The difference is that the premise of the, of the environmental statute that you've mentioned is that uh, the uh, liable party caused that injury to the environment. And had a very caused, small part in it. Couldn't have had a very small part in it. Could have had a very small part, but yeah. causation uh, as, a, as a principled matter is fundamental to the operation of that. So statute. if you caused in part this expectation on behalf of the miners, then would you say it was the same thing? No, because I would say that an expectation is not a sufficiently uh, sufficient basis to justify retroactive legislation, because expect You're causing in part their being out there old without medical care. Well, <clears throat> the court in Turner-Elkhorn distinguished between specific medical needs and generalized medical needs. We did not cause the needs of these minors or their spouses for medical care. Would you explain to me once more why a company that's a recent entrant, like let's take in this case Ohio Valley Coal, why it's compatible with due process, and I think you said it was, to stick such a company that's a current player, it's a signatory to the most recent contract, with liability for people who work for Eastern from the 40s to the 60s. That You seem to say this is not something that has to be loaded on the public at large. You can put it on the industry, but only certain players. So I'm trying to understand why it's fair to do it for some and not the other. other. Congress has broad latitude to impose obligations on existing members of an industry to bear liability uh, for uh, workers who are currently in the business or formerly in the business. It's in the nature of an excise. Congress, I think, has virtually unlimited power to do so, Justice Ginsburg. 
If there are no further questions, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Your time just expired, Mr. Montgomery. Thank you, Your Honor. <laughs> Mr. Needler. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The uh, Coal Industry Retirement Retiree Benefits Act of 1992 rests on two basic determinations made by Congress in that year. <coughs> Excuse me. First, Congress determined that the cost of furnishing health benefits to retirees and their families, which benefits were at risk in 1992, should be borne by participants in the industry rather than by the public at large. And the second critical determination was that within that industry, the cost should be borne to the extent possible by those companies that had actually employed the miners. Well, why, did Congress say why it decided that these people shouldn't simply shift for themselves the way most other people do if they don't have a contractual right? Well, the, the determination by Congress at the time, there, there were actually two, th two reasons. One is that Congress, the act rests on a determination or judgment that, there, that the miners had legitimate expectations that these funds uh, would pay lifetime benefits, and they had paid lifetime benefits to retirees since 1950. But they were not of a contract. They were not something that could be enforced in a court. I no, but, but the, the due process clause is not limited. Congress's ability under the due process clause is not limited to enforcing existing contractual relationships, as this Court's decisions in Concrete Pipe uh, and Connolly uh, have shown. Mr. Needler, what, what was the first time at which minors were, were actually guaranteed lifetime benefits? There was no legal guarantee, but the expectation — Ever. There, there was there — was, there, were, there were guarantees during the period of the respective contracts, but each of the, each of the contracts was a contract for term, for a term, and it's important to recognize — And in any of uh, — in which of those contracts were — specific guarantees of lifetime health benefits given. 1974 was the first time that the, that the uh, agreement itself contained those, contained those limitations, but with respect, I mean, excuse me, that guarantee, but with respect to the retirees. For the duration of the contract? For the dur and that's all, that's all it could be. They said lifetime, lifetime benefits, but they, but. Just for the duration of well, the Well, the contract had a term. And what about uh, for the uh, spouses and dependents. Spouses so when and was the first time that was provided? Spouses and, and, and dependents of retirees were, uh, those benefits were afforded from the beginning. For widows' benefits, there were widows' benefits from 1950 to 54 uh, for for life, and then that dropped down to a year. Two was it ever back. part of the contract? In 1974, the widow's benefits were again. That's what I'm trying to find out. What, what, when was there specific provision for it in a contract? In 1974 was, the, again, was the first time. But the, Mr. But, Needley, you said earlier that uh, despite the, the date you just gave, that, that lifetime benefits had been paid since the 1950s. Could that, you expand on that? That's correct. Uh, and this is something that, the, that uh, a number of the courts have pointed to. Since 1950, uh, lifetime benefits were paid, uh, health benefits were paid to retirees and their families. And under, under a series of collective bargaining... Beyond the terms of the original contract? Well, the, the, contracts, the contracts were renewed. They simply got re rolled they, over. They, they got renewed. And that, that You're talking about lifetime benefits to people who were lucky enough to die before the company went out of business. Well, right? not at all. The, the lifetime — these were benefits under, a, under an industry-wide multi-employer plan, and that's, and that's one of the things that, that Petitioner overlooks. The benefits under this plan, the miners all along continued to keep those benefits, even if the company they worked for went out of business, because this was a collective undertaking by all employers in the industry to furnish benefits for all employees when they retired and their spouses and their widows. And this furnished — this furnished significant — Widows? Widows, widows not, not while this company was... Uh, no, there were, there were widows' benefits, the duration of the benefit. There were, there were lifetime widows' benefits from 1950 to 1954, and that dropped back then to, a, to uh, one year in 1954, but there were provisions even then for widows' benefits of some For duration, one year. For some duration, but the, the... So the one thing that the term of the contract limited uh, was the term in which contributions had to be made. That's correct. On expiration, no more contributions unless the contract is, is renewed. But under the plan, so long as the, the plan was funded, 
to the extent it was funded, they would continue to draw benefits. And, and that is back. correct. And, in fact, the plans were funded. And a collective bargaining agreement, especially a multi-employer collective bargaining agreement that is, that is industry-wide, is more than just a contract. It is, it is the document that establishes the relationship long-term. There is a collective bargaining relationship that extends from contract period to contract period. And employees come to expect, and particularly in this industry, came to expect as evidenced by the strikes that occurred every time there was some threat to the continu- continuation of those benefits. They came to expect that those benefits would continue over But were well, notices yeah, regularly continue. sent saying that these aren't guaranteed and they can be terminated? It, all, it depends on whether we have the money? Again, Weren't those regularly provided? They, they, were, they, were in the, they were in the forms. But again, Justice O'Connor, the question is not — this is not a contract enforcement question. The question is whether con- it is rational for Congress to look to the collective — the relationship that grew up under a series of collective well, bargaining Let's talk agreements. about the collective bargaining agreements. Th- those agreements were negotiated with, with one of the most powerful unions in the country. And I'm sure the negotiations uh, uh, could have uh, taken into account whether, whether the, f- the funding of this thing was to be a guaranteed funding of, of, of whatever amount is necessary to provide lifetime benefits. That was not in the contract. They just agreed to put in a certain amount every year. But, but the- I mean, th- th- this was a, a sophisticated labor union who adopted that agreement on behalf of their employees. It's hard for me to understand how that could have created any reasonable expectation that the companies would kick in whatever it takes to provide lifetime benefits. It's very clearly said we will kick in so much each year. Quite the contrary, Justice Scalia. I think that the course of conduct in this industry from from the seizure of the coal mines in 1946 to the current time was that the coal companies would take care of these. Of well, these why did the collective bargaining agreements say that? If you say that the course of conduct may, where would you expect to find the employer's intentions more better placed or better examined than in the agreements they sign? Well, but the expectations involved are not just what what comes from the employer's intentions, but what expectations were reasonably accrued by virtue of the the collective bargaining relationship that the employers entered into. You had to to renew the contract every every three years, was it? And and over the course of the relationship, in fact, they were renewed. And under the the plan, for example, another very tangible symbol of the the permanence of these benefits was the plan constructed hospitals in critical communities in Appalachia to furnish health benefits. These were financed by 20-year loans from the fund in the the 50s to establish a permanent system of health delivery. Can I guess to invested investment-backed expectations, I usually thought it was the expectation of the person who's paying the liability. You're, you're saying it was this was an expectation on the part of the, of the miners. Well, I th- I first, uh, two, two, an- two answers to that, if I may. The first, the first is if we're looking if we're looking at expectations, I, th- uh, I think it's proper to look both at the expectations, look at the expectations of both parties to the contractual relationship, and. and an important part of that expectation here is that this was this the employer didn't just hire somebody during the term of the contract. The employee during that term, term of the contract accrued service credits that enabled the person upon retirement to get the very benefits we're talking about here. For example, and this is highly instructive, Sam East, who is who's the minor whose assignment to Eastern triggered this lawsuit worked for Eastern from 1934 to 1960, 26 years of his working life, were with Eastern. The only reason that he and then now his widow is eligible for benefits under this plan is because he worked for Eastern. He he accrued the 20 years of eligibility of service credits during his time with Eastern. Eastern was present at the creation of this collective bargaining relationship as a member of BCOA in 1950. And the problems that we see today are the product of the of the way in which that collective bargaining relationship was structured in 1950. May, may, I ask, may I interrupt you with one, one question, just to be sure I, I get it in my mind. If the facts are that the, these were all defined contribution plans, were they not? Yes. That the employee, employers consistently said, this is going to be the limit of our liability and our exposure and so forth. But the union representatives consistently told the employees, we're going to take care of you, we're going to use enough muscle to be sure that they contribute enough money. And the employer said, well, we don't, we don't accept that. 
Would that still be a sufficient expectation? I think it would be a sufficient basis for con- on which Congress may act. In other words, that the unions taking the position they could do it would be enough the employees can rely on that, despite the fact, assuming that to be the case, the employers regularly and consistently said, this is as much as we're going to do. Well, they, they entered into contracts for a term, but co- what Congress and, did, and for defined contribution as opposed could, to benefit. What Congress could look at legitimately was the course of conduct over the over the history of this industry, in which health benefits and retire health benefits were were a critical factor. And Congress could also look at the fact that every time there was an effort to take these back, most recently in 1989 in the Pittston strike, there were severe disruptions to the national economy. So what you're saying is the reasonable expectations that others have of what claims they have on your property that's controlling. No, I, I, I'm not saying it's controlling, but there's a combination of expectations. And if I may... You we- are saying, aren't you, that the, that the acts, the unilateral, in, in answer to Justice Stevens's question, that the unilateral acts of one party to the agreement can create a reasonable expectation when the other party says no. How can that be a reasonable expect, source of reasonable expectation when, on, on Justice Stevens's hypothesis, it is disputed from the beginning? Well, if I may, the, the, the other party did not say no. The, ne- the other party, the employers, never said five years and then we're not funding a benefit. Okay, so that's not this case. Is, did they say anything? They... What they, what they did is what's significant is that at every time there was a, co- a contract renewal, the contract was renewed, the contributions paying into the, as you pointed out, the plan is ongoing. The contributions were paid into the plan at every contract renewal. That course of conduct, and Congress can legitimately look at the course of conduct in this unique industry over a course of time to see what sort of expectations were, had legitimately uh, grown up. But Mr. Dealer, may I ask you if you can differentiate the following case from what's going on here. Congress passed the Equal Pay Act in 1963, but since World War II, when there was an executive order that says industry, you should pay men and women the same for the same work, there had been a, a, an expectancy built up that people would be paid equally without regard to sex. Suppose Congress had said in 63, and not only prospectively must the pay be equal, but we're going to reach back to the date of that executive order, and every employer that was in violation of the equal pay principle in that period will have to cough up the difference. I think this is very different because this Act only addresses health benefits prospectively from the date of the Act. This Act does not reach back and require people like Petitioner to pay for health benefits in the preceding years. The $300 million deficit that was projected in these funds by 1993 uh, was made up entirely by the companies that were parties to the 1988 collective bargaining agreement. This was another agreement that was due to expire in 1993. When Congress looked at this arrangement, if there had been no new collective bargaining agreement, all of the retirees in this fund would have been out of luck. Change Justice Ginsburg's uh, hypothetical a little bit then, so it's, it, it's, it, you don't have to pay off all people uh, against whom you, uh, you uh, were in violation of, uh, of equal pay, but only those people who are now impecunious as a result of your failure to have done that in the past. So it has the same future application as this statute. Would that be okay? Um, Those people who would otherwise be on welfare today, whom you did not give equal pay 30 years ago. And I, I think under the hypothetical there was no, maybe I misunderstood. There was, I'm changing it. I'm no, changing. but there was no legal requirement to pay. Yes, 30 years ago there was no legal requirement. But we're adopting the legal requirement today, and if anyone is uh, on welfare today because of your failure to pay, give equal pay 30 years ago, you have to take care of their welfare needs. Again, it would depend on the rationality of it. But that seems, if, that seems to me to be vastly different from this situation. There was an existing collective bargaining relationship that provided accumulated service credits. The employers obtained the benefits of mobility and portability of minors under this during the time they were there. They obtained the benefits of mechanization. They obtained the benefits of trade-offs with, of, of wages against mechanization and, and pension benefits. There was an ongoing collective bargaining relationship under which there were lifetime benefits guaranteed. So during the course of the relationship, that was present. But if if I could go back to the address, uh, Justice Souter has mentioned uh, Trustee Owen's uh, statements, but another significant 
uh, point in the record to note is the address by, by Mr. Moody, who was the president of the Southern Coal Operators Association, a member of BCO, BCOA in 1953. And this is discussed at page 48 of the fund's brief. Mr. Moody was making an address in which he identified the problems in the fund that were present at the creation, a promise of benefits and yet pay-as-you-go funding, which created an internal problem with the fund from the beginning. And he said at that time, it may well be it was, it was foreseeable that Congress at some point might have to intervene to assure either regulation of the benefits or to assure the payment of the funds. And that's at page uh, 2000 of the appendix in the Court of Appeals. The people in, the, in this industry, the employers, knew from experience that the government, that this was well, very I think, I think clearly it's an area where one might expect Congress to step in, as it did with ERISA, and provide some multi-employer plans that are specific and provide for funding. But what we're talking about is whether it's reasonable to think they're going to look back 30-some years to impose the liability. I mean, that's the shocker. Well, but, the, but two things about that. In Turner, in Turner Elkhorn, the, an employer's liability for paying black lung benefits to employees could have applied to employment relationships that ended decades earlier. You have a different situation, probably, if the employer and the employment was itself the cause of the minor's disease than when you were talking about general benefits for, for instance, spouses and dependents and general health care needs of people unrelated to their service in the mining industry. Isn't that a difference? No, but but there, there is a causation element here as well. Again, what we are seeing today, what, what Congress saw in the early 1990s was the, was the, the consequences of a, of a pattern of conduct and collective bargaining that began in the 1950s with, with a guarantee of benefits and insufficient funding. And the industry made up for that each time, each time it was asked to contribute to it that. It wasn't a guarantee of benefits. In the terms, in the ter- in the terms that it they were — It was a guarantee of a certain amount of funding. That's true. Again, the question is not — this is not a contract enforcement action. The question is whether Congress can look to the collective bargaining relationship to define the category of people. Well, the real — Congress real looked at that. What findings do we have by Congress here that there was a guarantee of benefits? Do we have any finding by Congress? The, beginning in 1974, it was expressed in the contract. There is no indication that that was a departure. And, in fact — I think Justice Scalia asked you, is that a finding? What did Congress make that finding? The, the, fine, the, the act itself doesn't contain the findings, but, it act, but, but un, in a due process challenge, the question is whether the facts on which Congress apparently based its action could reasonably be believed to be true. About a takings challenge, and even if there had been in a takings case a congressional finding that this property belongs to the United States anyway, this is and not, we're taking it for that reason, would, no, would, we, would yeah. we be bound by that un, finding? Under, under this Court's takings jurisprudence, the, uh, there's a vast difference between adjusting the benefits and burdens of, of economic conduct and and, uh, and that, That's a different conduct. issue. I'm, I'm not asking about that issue. I'm, I'm asking that, that in our takings jurisprudence, do we accept findings made by the Congress as to whether the taking is justified or not? There is not? some degree of review, but, but — but, but I, I think it's, it, it seems to me hardly irrational for Congress to conclude that over a 50-year 50, 50 course of, of conduct in an industry, if lifetime benefits have in fact been paid, that the retirees who work their entire lives in the mines under such a system in which their fathers and brothers and spe- Congress may have concluded that, and it would not be unreasonable for Congress to have concluded that if Congress concluded that. We don't know for sure that Congress concluded. The debates, the debates leading up to the passage of this act show careful attention by Congress as to who within the coal industry should bear the burden. And Congress concluded as the, the, uh, that, that the burden should not be borne by current coal companies. Why should it, it not be the coal? Them. Why should it just be the coal company? Let, let, let's suppose, and I, I think this could be the case, I'm not sure, that the real problem here is the decline in the price in the market for coal. And what happened was the natural gas companies were taking all the business. Why should the natural gas companies pay this? Could, could, could the Congress say that the natural gas companies, uh, I think, I because, because they are, because, let, let's assume that they're the ones that are taking all of the profits, they're the ones that should pay the, pay the cost for 
keeping everybody warm in, 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 in until the a, natural gas industry could develop. In terms of a current assessment, Congress could certainly do that. A portion of the a portion of the cost of this is paid so, for. So, so you think you think this case would, would come out just the same way if the natural gas companies had to pay the liability that we're talking about here? I'm, I, I was responding to the to current natural gas companies. Congress can impose a tax on a current industry, and in fact, a major portion of the liability here is paid was paid for by transfers from the 1950 pension fund and from the abandoned mine fund, which are paid for by uh, fees on, on current mining companies, they pay for the miners who can't be assigned to an employer. Where, but where an employee can be identified with an employer who actually got the fruits of that person's labor, who gave him service credits during the employment relationship, who, who uh, because of that employment relationship, was part of a collective bargaining relationship, Congress can look to that relationship to define the category of people among whom the cost should be spread. And it's carefully tailored here for pre-1978. I'm carefully tailoring. Is there any exception for companies like the Mary Helen Cole Corporation? One of the briefs spoke about the plight of that company. There, there is not, but it is not uncommon to have a, uh, for a generally applicable statute to take the company as it finds it uh, with respect to its economic viability. Thank you, Mr. Needler. Uh, Mr. Buscemi? Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the Court. I'm here on behalf of the trustees of the Combined Benefit Fund and the beneficiaries for whom they are fiduciaries. I think it's easy in the midst of the argument here to lose sight of the human dimension of this problem. That's the dimension that Congress focused on when it acted in 1992. Congress faced an imminent crisis. The collective bargaining agreement that was in force at the time Congress acted had less than four months to run. And at the end of that collective bargaining agreement, the employers who had signed that collective bargaining agreement, like Eastern, like the other employers that have submitted briefs to the court, could have made the very same argument. They could have said that our obligation to contribute was for the term of this agreement. Now, let me make sure that we're clear on what the historical record was. The historical record was that in 1946, President Truman seized the mines, the Secretary of the Interior and the Union negotiated a collective bargaining agreement. From that time forward, there were health care benefits provided for miners, spouses, dependents in the coal industry, funded by contributions by the employers. That continued year after year after year for almost 50 years by the time Congress acted. In 1974, for the first time, the collective bargaining agreement made a specific reference to beneficiaries retaining a health services card until death or for life. In 1978, there were further changes in the collective bargaining agreement, and now, although the collective bargaining agreement prescribed specific contribution amounts per ton or per hour, the employers were given the right to increase those contribution amounts as needed to guarantee the benefits that were specified in the contract. So by the time Congress acted in 1992, we had been under a regime for the last 14 years in which there had been a specific set of guaranteed benefits. Now, Mr. Montgomery's client, Eastern, through its wholly owned subsidiary, Eastern Associated, signed not one, not two, but three collective bargaining agreements that guaranteed these benefits. But so excuse me, the, the, the liability here was not imposed on the basis of the fact that, uh, uh, that, that this was the parent company of a company that had signed a later agreement. That was, that, that's not the basis for the imposition of the liability at all. Your Honor, all I'm saying is that when... In fact, as far as this statute is concerned. Well, I would not agree with that, Your Honor, with all respect. I would think that when the Court looks at the reasonableness of what Congress has done under this deferential standard of review, that looking at the situation with respect to the particular petitioner before the Court is what the Court has uh, traditionally done. And it is... We look at those aspects of the situation that Congress took into account and made the basis of liability. Well, again, the fact that this was the parent of a subsidiary that, 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 that is liable for some other things was not the basis of liability. Well, with respect, Your Honor, I think that this Court has said repeatedly that this Court, in reviewing the constitutionality of legislation, may take into account 
account not only what the legislative record may reveal about what Congress actually thought or what some members of Congress actually thought, but also what they reasonably could have thought. In fact, the Court has said repeatedly that there is no obligation for Congress to build a legislative record. All there is an obligation to do is to vote. What holding do you want us to make if the case comes before us where there is no subsidiary relationship? Well, Your Honor, we think that the, the, Mary, the Mary Hill mine, I think, was mentioned. I, I, maybe I have the name wrong. Yes, well, Mary Helen is, is a case that uh, is pending right now in the Fourth Circuit, and it's, the statute has been sustained with respect to Mary Helen by the district court in that case, and we think it should be sustained with respect to Mary Helen, but that's not the case before this court. Mary Helen is a company that was in business for some uh, 45 years, They have a small number of retirees who are still in this plan, and they are the ones who employed those retirees for for the longest, and none of those retirees ever worked for any company that signed the 78 or later agreement. One of the things that has been missed here, I think, is that Congress has set forth a very detailed scheme in which they have placed the lion's share of the burden on those companies that were the signatories to the 88 agreement, the collective bargaining agreement that was in force at the time that the statute was passed. What is the uh, factual circumstance? That is, I take in your argument that, that basically, in respect to this company, even though it isn't a veil-piercing statute, the only extent to which it's unfair to them involves the subsidiary. It's a question of fairness. Now, suppose you take that out of it. How many are there a lot of companies? Is there a lot of liability going on here as a practical matter involving companies just like them, but where there is no subsidiary relation, so that we'd have to face this case, uh, the same question later? Uh, Your Honor, uh, the most recent statistics as of the beginning of the current fiscal year are as follows. There are currently 76,933 beneficiaries in the combined benefit fund. Of those 76,933, 20 percent, 15,469, are unassigned. 15,469, 20.1 percent. 6,628, or 8.6 percent, are assigned to companies that did not sign the 1978 or later NBCWA. And I might say that Congress could probably afford to take care, of, take care of them out of general funds, wouldn't you think? Well, Your Honor, the possibility of alternative funding is, is, is not — I mean, sure, the health care costs for 6,628 people could be paid for, I suspect, out of the Treasury. But there are competing demands, as Your Honor is aware, for that money. <laughs> and Congress — one of the things that — 6,628 are assigned to companies like uh, Eastern, but that have no subsidiary that was in the business after 78. That's right. Well, and that includes, I should say, that includes the 1,332, because that includes the 1,332 that Eastern has, because in this... Eastern had a subsidiary. Eastern had a subsidiary, but when the funds list Eastern, because of the point that Justice Scalia made, we list Eastern in the pre-78 group. No, no, and what I'm trying to think of is the practical effect. Yes, If you were to win the case on the alternate ground involving the subsidiary, uh, whether, in fact, that would leave a lot of the miners, let's say... There would be about 5,000 beneficiaries out of the 76,000 that would still be left that have been assigned to pre-78 signatories. Who who are not subsidiaries? Or who who don't have subsidiaries? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, One of the things that we sort of have overlooked here is what situation Congress considered. Congress didn't just think about this alternative. Congress thought about leaving it to collective bargaining. That they recognized wasn't going to work because the people weren't around. We have less than half of the beneficiaries who are assigned to people who are signatories to the current agreement. Congress thought about just imposing the liability on the 78 or later signatories. Congress actually passed a bill that didn't have this reach-back provision in it, but it was vetoed, wasn't it? Yes. So then they put in the reach-back. The bill was a little different. We're talking about now. The bill was a little different, Justice O'Connor. The bill had two features. With respect to those beneficiaries uh, who could be assigned to former employers that had signed the 78 or later agreement, those former employers had to pay. 
with respect to the former to the beneficiaries who could not be assigned either because they had no former employer in business or because it was all pre-1978 there was a fee imposed across the board on the industry as a whole whether or not there was any relationship to the collective bargain multi-employer system and that bill was part of a larger bill, an omnibus tax bill, that was vetoed. And, of course, we don't know precisely why it was vetoed. We do know that there was nothing in the veto message that specified any objection to that particular bill. Congress made the decision to impose this liability on all NBCWA signatories. And as I understand the argument here, Petitioner says that any of these decisions that Congress might have made would have been fine, except for the one that they did make. They could, they could have imposed it on the taxpayers. They could have imposed it on the coal industry. They could have imposed it only on the 78 or later signatories. They could have imposed it on the 88 signatories. All of that would have been fine. Just this particular choice is not fine. And with all respect, I think that ignores the nature of this multi-employer system. As the Second Circuit said in upholding the statute in the LTV case, this system contained this latent problem, or what the Court of Appeals called the latent loophole, from the beginning, because as employers like Eastern accorded their beneficiaries service credits and built up that 20 years that you needed to get the health care, those beneficiaries were accumulating, and they were staying around, but some of the employers were leaving. And that was the problem that was inherent in the system. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Bershemi. The case is submitted.